0: Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. I'm going to take a bit of a different tact this Sunday. I'm basically going to have three things that I want to convince you of. The first is that this, what we are studying, is a covenant and not a contract. The second thing that I want to convince you of is why human life is sacred. And then the third thing I want to convince you of is why your life is sacred. R.C. Sproul wrote concerning the law that it was given for three purposes. The first is that it's a mirror, that it's reflecting the glory and the absolute holiness of God to us. It reflects our sinfulness as we look into it and know that we can't attain it. Second, it's a restraint on evil in this world. The Ten Commandments are the bedrock for all of modern civilization. And third, the law is given to show us what is pleasing to God. The Christian delights in the law as God himself delights in it. Jesus said, it is, um, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments, John 14, verse 15. This is the highest function of the law in our realm, to serve as an instrument for the people of God to give him honor and glory. Now, I've taken time each week as we study through these ten words, the Decalogue, to remind you of that setting in which they were given to remind you that they were not given by Moses on tablets. They were uttered by the very voice of God himself over Mount Sinai. And the first four commands tell us about the God who is speaking to us, that he alone is God, and that we are not to attempt to make a mental or molten image of him, because there is nothing in his created realm that is him. Except Jesus. And as you can read throughout all the New Testament, we, the redeemed, are the Israel of God. We are the saved. We are the body of Christ, the representative of God in this realm. This is the same thing that the Israelites are told in such places as 2 Chronicles 7.14. There they were called by his name. They were to be representatives of God to all the world. And because we have been grafted into that olive tree, we have been redeemed. And we have had our hearts regenerated to be able to see our sin against this great and holy God and our need for a savior. And we can see Jesus as that Savior. And we have been told that there is salvation for all who confess with their mouth and believe in their hearts that Jesus is Lord and you're saved. And we move then from being an enemy of God to being a son of God. And we too are called by his name. We are Christian. And we are not to take this name in vain. As Christians, we are are to know that the Sabbath day was given as a commemoration of the work of week. And that no amount of Sabbath keeping ever brought rest to those souls who were outside of Christ. Which is why he came, why he lived, why he died and rose again in order to be our rest. And we are to remember the Sabbath, which is our rest. And to keep it holy. And then the fifth command. Honor your father and your mother. Given to strengthen and highlight the importance of the family unit to God. Because God is a relational God. He's respecting God. Or honoring God. Submitting within himself in that tri- uh, Trinitarian Godhead. And we as his creation function and thrive in the same type of family setting. But the command to honor your parents wasn't given to make people good. It was given to teach obedience and subjection to God. A point that's made in Hebrews chapter 12, which says, Have you forgotten exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones that he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom the Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? Verses 5-9. through And that fifth command is the bridge between the first four and the last five. It tells us the why of the last five. It makes sense of them. And it should direct our attention back to the first four. As we find our identity in the name that we have been given. In the body that we have been made part of. In the God who is speaking at that moment above Mount Sinai. And now we come to the sixth command, do not murder. But before we begin to unpack the why of the sixth command, I want once more to point, uh, the point I wanted to make to you is that I need to convince you that this is not a contract that God is doing. The law of God is not a contract. We humans, we think of it as a contract, which is why those that are outside of it disregard it completely, because it's pointless to them. They don't even think about it. They don't think about the terms of it any more than they would think about a contract to purchase a car that they have no interest in knowing or owning. They didn't sign anything. They never entered into a contract with God, whoever or whatever that is. But God did not make a contract with this this creation. He is a covenant-making, covenant-keeping God. And the law of God is a covenant. To enter into a contract, both parties must agree to the terms. And there's no moral failure in not keeping the specified terms of a contract. But not so with a covenant. Because a covenant can be made unilaterally or bilaterally. Wills are unilateral covenants entered into by one party. Marriages are bilateral covenants. And the covenant of God is unilateral. Genesis 1, verses 27 through 31. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. Here, there is the covenant with creation and specifically with man. And what follows is the telling of how these men are to act within this covenant. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life. I have given every green plant for food. And so it was. And God saw everything that he made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. That's the original covenant with man, unilateral. And the humans that this covenant was made with, transgressed this covenant. They moved from the positive side of this covenant to the negative side of this covenant. And then we hear about this covenant again in Genesis 6-8, where where God tells us that Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. And this is why Noah and his family were spared from the destruction of God. Another unilateral telling of this covenant and then again in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now Yahweh said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And then all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Another unilateral covenant. But then we come to Exodus 19, verses 3 through 6. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings, and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if... You will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom, a priest, and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words that Yahweh had commanded them. And all the people answered together and said, All that Yahweh has spoken we will do. Now this covenant, the one being made through Moses to these people, now is bilateral. But the bilateral portion of the covenant doesn't nullify the unilateral reality of it. There is a reason that this unilateral covenant was given to the house of Jacob and to the children of Israel as a bilateral covenant. And for us to understand the reason for this, we need to turn to the letter written to the church in Galatia. Grab your Bibles and turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We are going to read this entire chapter since it is devoted entirely to this very topic, the law being given as a covenant and not a contract. Galatians 3, verse 1. Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies his spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. What has happened within this church, which was born of men and women, coming to God the Father through the Son, being made righteous by His blood, being made holy and restoring them to the right standing with God in His covenant, all by through faith in the Son. They then began listening to men who Paul called Judaizers, men who claimed to be of God, through faith in his son, but who also claimed that to be saved, you must follow the commands of the law, specifically circumcision, since this was how the children of God were identified and set apart from the rest of humanity through the law. And without the physical obedience of circumcision, you could not be saved. But he goes on, he says, Know then that it was those of faith who were the sons of Abraham, And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So God, through Paul, is directing these wandering saints back to the reality of the covenant of God that is unilateral, done by God alone, and not bilateral a point that he begins making in verses 10 through 14. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Now now Paul isn't making light of the law. He's not saying that there was no reason for it or that there's no value in the law. What he is saying is that the law is not a contract. It represents, it illuminates, reveals to us the unilateral covenant that God has made with us, a point that he begins making in verse 15, verses 15 through 29 of Galatians 3. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it's been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring, and it doesn't say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which was, came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise was made, and it was put in place through angels as by an intermediary. What Paul is pointing to in speaking about the transgression is the sin of Adam and the death that he brought into all creation, the reality that we can never enter into the rest of God, the positive side of the covenant of God, because of our transgression. The law was given to show us the impossibility of ever entering into that rest on our own. But there was a promise made by God to Adam, an intermediary. Verse 20. Now, intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the, the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Saints, do you not see? Can you not comprehend the great riches that are found in Christ? In him, we are brought back into right standing with God, back into the blessings of his covenant through Christ in his name. Paul goes on in verses 27 through 29. He says, For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. God desires us to see how the covenant that he made with us is still binding. He gave us the law, the bilateral covenant, to show us how far we are outside of that covenant because of our sin, something that Paul understood very well, which is why he was so very angry and upset with those that he called Judaizers, those that he said in verse 12 of chapter 5 of Galatians, I wish those who would unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Paul understood that within many who were within the covenant community, there still lurked that sin of self, the desire to place burdens on the freemen of the covenant. And he closed the letter to the church in Galatia with these words, Galatians 6, 11 through 16. He said, see what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand? For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. Did you catch that last sentence, though? To the Israel of God. Who did he say was the Israel of God? Those who walk by the rule of faith. Not by law. And that God, through Paul, calls those that walk by faith, trust in the finished work of Christ on the cross to redeem them. He calls them the Israel of God. Ties right back into that covenant that was being instituted with these people that stood at the base of Mount Sinai. Do you recall verse 3 of Exodus 19? The thing that God said to Moses that he was supposed to go and tell the people. Here's verse 3 of Exodus 19 again. Yahweh called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. God knew within that group of people that were specifically chosen that there was a separation, that there were the house of Jacob, and there were the people of Israel. And that second group were those that walked by faith like their forefather Abraham did. But irregardless of which group they were in, the covenant of God still stood. And it stood because he was and is God. And because of this, all humans are subject to his covenant, even those that have transgressed it. Because he is just and holy, all that are not holy must be cast out and punished for their heresy, for their apostasy. They, in essence, will get what they desire. They will be cast out of his presence, out of his grace and into his wrath. And now we can begin to look at the sixth command. Thou shall not murder In the original Hebrew, that word that is translated as murder can also be translated as kill. And because of this, there are those that hold to be of God, you must be a pacifist. And that under no circumstance can you kill. And if you ever study the original Hebrew, you're going to find out that it's not easy to understand the original Hebrew. It's not like anything that we speak in the English language. And the word that is used in verse 13 that is translated as murder or kill is ambiguous outside of the context that it's in. In other words, if you don't have that word used in a sentence, you don't really know what it means. You can't define its meaning. But the same word is used elsewhere in the Old Testament, such as in Deuteronomy 19, 4 through 7. And here's that. This is the provision for the manslayer. Manslayer is that same word. Who by fleeing, there he may save his life. If anyone kills his neighbor unintentionally, without having hated him in the past, as when someone goes into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and his axe swings, and the axe to cut down a tree and the head slips from the handle and strikes his neighbor so that he dies. He may flee to one of these cities and live, lest the avenger of blood in hot anger pursue the manslayer and overtake him because the way is long and strike him fatally, though the man did not deserve to die since he had not hated his neighbor in the past. Therefore, I command you, you shall set apart three cities. And the word, like I said, that's translated as manslayer, manslayer is the same as Exodus 20, verse 13. Which is why most verses, or more, most versions, translate the word in Exodus 20, 13 as murder and not kill. And in fact, there are multiple reasons within the Old Testament that God commands, commands the killing of people. In fact, right after speaking to the, these words to these people, God will call Moses back up to the mountain where he will reiterate these commands to Moses and there will command that people be killed for transgressing his laws. And those reasons that he gives that they will be killed include this, homicide, striking one's parents, kidnapping, cursing one's parents, witchcraft, divination, bestiality, worshipping other gods, violating the Sabbath, child sacrifice, adultery, incest, male homosexual intercourse. And these are all just found in the very next chapter of Exodus. And you add to this fact, Moses is sent down the mountain by God because of the rebellion of the very people that heard the voice of God. And that's found in Exodus 32. And there, we're told, when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on Yahweh's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh God of Israel, Put on your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate to gate throughout the camp, and each one of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. Verses 25 through 27. There is a difference between murder and killing; one is evil, and the other is lawful. In both instances, though, a person is dead, and this, in of, it, in of itself, is why the taking of human life must be taken seriously. But at the root of this issue is the question of why is human life of any more importance than any other life, any other animal? even a cockroach. I mean, logically speaking, an argument can be made that the lives of cockroaches are of greater value than human lives because they haven't transgressed the covenant of God. They obey God and do only that which they were originally created to do. They provide a natural source of food for many birds and animals who would suffer if there were no cockroaches. They also pollinate plants as they scurry from one place to another. They eat uh, what other insects will not eat, and they help in breaking those those things down into nitrogen-rich excrement. Plus, they can live in thriving conditions that cause other insects to die, allowing humans to study their immune system to aid in the development of very powerful antibiotics, such as those that were created to fight staph infection and MRSA. So why is human life of more value than a cockroach, and should it be? Because for the naturalist, the evolutionist, more often than not, they don't see human life as of more value than a whale or a monkey or a bird. They will make laws to protect the lives of one, and at the same time, they will advocate for laws to murder the other. But humans have value for one reason alone, and it isn't our ability to think. Although the ability to think is linked to the reason that humans have an intrinsic value. Our value is found in Genesis 1, verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. The imago Deo. Here is the reason that humans have any value. And even the how of the creation of humans further defines the why we have value. That's found in Genesis 2-7. There it says, Then Yahweh God formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. When we begin our study in Genesis in a few weeks and we come to this verse, we'll dig into the importance of being made from dust. But for right now, we're just going to stick with the importance of having the breath of life breathe into our nostrils and then becoming a living creature. This is the explanation of verse 26, the creating of the image of God after his likeness. This is the human soul, the eternal human soul that is manifested by God at the time of conception, not before, not after, before conception were not eternal spirits floating around waiting for a baby to be conceived, like the Mormons believe. And at the same time, the life in the womb of a human has intrinsic value at the moment of conception, because it is then that the spirit is alive within it. In essence, our human bodies are just mortal avatars for our eternal godlike spirits. And this is why human life is of value. Why we shall not murder. And even negligent homicide is included as murder. That's outlined for us in Exodus 21, where it says, When an ox gores a man or a woman to death, the ox shall not be stoned, and his flesh shall not be eaten, but the owner of the ox shall be liable. But if the ox has been accustomed to goring in the past, and its owner has been worn but has not kept it in, and it kills a man or a woman, the ox shall be stoned, and its owner shall also be put to death. You need to be careful. And the answer as to why it is wrong to murder is found in who we are created in the image of. God. This is why human life is sacred. So what about abortion? That's murder. Abortion was not unknown in the ancient world. God even gave direct instructions to Moses concerning the unborn in the next chapter of Exodus. Here's Exodus 21, verses 22 through 25. It says, "When When men strive together, Now, there are those that try and use that section of scripture to prove that unborn have less value than the born. But you can only hold to that thinking if you don't read that verse, these verses in context. The baby may have been born premature because the mother was struck, but it was born. And the man who struck her was liable for whatever monetary compensation that father deemed appropriate. However, if there is harm done, then the one who is doing the striking, who caused the baby to die in the womb, they would be subject to the Mosaic law of a life for a life. David said, For you formed my inward parts, you knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of your earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. Psalm 139, verses 13 through 16. Still made in the image of God. And then we're told in Psalm 127, verse 3, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb, a reward. And we are commanded to protect life. We are commanded to actually do something about this sin called abortion. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12, Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, behold, we didn't know this, does not he who weigh the heart perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your soul know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? What about suicide? Is that murder? Yes, it is. Suicide is a very selfish act. And if you've ever been prone to suicidal thoughts, as I was in my youth, you understand this concept very well. Oh, you're so wrapped up in how you feel. You think that the world will be such a better place without you. You think that those people who don't esteem you, don't give you the love that you think that you deserve, oh, they're going to regret it when you're gone. Or you just think that it's all not worth it. That the pain and agony of your life is not worth living. And these are all selfish thoughts. Emotional, sinful, and anti-God thoughts. Do you realize that there are six specific times in the Bible that a person commits suicide? The last one was recorded for us in Matthew 27.5. And that was Judas Iscariot. God is the giver of life, and he is so sovereign over all. And God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling. Psalm 46, 1 through 3. But if you're a thinker, and I hope that you have been thinking, you've been thinking to yourself, God killed people, even innocent people. I mean, he wiped out the entire human population, save eight one time with a flood. He even killed all the plants and the animals along with them. Why is it okay for him to kill even what we would call murder of innocent people and then give us a law not to murder isn't this the charge against the god of the bible isn't this why so many modern evangelicals are afraid of the old testament they want to distance themselves away from the god of the old testament because the god of the old testament he was ruthless commanding his servants to wipe out entire peoples from the face of the earth, killing not only the men, but the women and the children as well. During the conquest of Canaan, God ordered the complete destructions of entire cities and nations. He said, but of these cities, of these people which Yahweh your God gives you as an inheritance, you shall not let anything that breathes remain alive, but you shall utterly destroy them. The Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites. Just as Yahweh your God has commanded you. Deuteronomy 20 verses 16 through 17. But before he gave that command, he tells the Israelites the why of giving of this command to utterly destroy them. Deuteronomy 12 verses 29 through 31. He says, When God when Yahweh your God cuts off before you the nations whom you shall go into dispossess, and you dispossess them and dwell in their land, take care that you not be ensnared to follow them. After they have been destroyed before you, that you do not inquire about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? That I may also do the same. You shall not worship Yahweh your God in that way. For every abominable thing that Yahweh hates, they, get, they have done for their gods. They have even burned their sons and their daughters in the fire to their gods. These cultures, these people were so wicked, so wicked that they had to be treated like a cancer. They had to be actively, aggressively destroyed. Like a rabid dog that would infect all that it would come in contact with. And God had been patient with these people, giving them the opportunity to repent and turn from their abominations. Here, Genesis chapter 15, verses 12 through 16, when God is speaking to Abraham. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then Yahweh said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. Here he is speaking of the Israelites in Egypt. He goes on, but I will bring judgment on that nation and they, that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great positions. And here he's speaking of the Egyptians. And then he tells Abraham the why of the 400 years of slavery for his chosen people. He says, "As for you, you shall go into your father, go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in, at a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete." This goes back to the reason why humans have value: God. The reason is that He is God and we are not. We are created beings. He is the creator. We are the clay, literally. And he is the potter. He has the right to do with us as he chooses. And this gets to the attribute of God that we call omnipotent, which means that he's all-powerful. Those that are still under that curse of Adam who think, who who love, who love to actually use this term against us, those who are no longer under this curse and stand on the omnipotence of God, they will say, if God is omnipotent, then can he create a stone so large that it can't lift it? Can he make a prison so airtight that he can't escape from it? And they think that they have found the Achilles heel to God. And this ties in with that same question, an accusation of those who have an issue with God that does not love everyone the same way. Those that will tell you that God did did not die for everyone, who does not give everyone the same chance to be reconciled to him. That God can't be a good, loving God. They don't understand God. The omnipotence of God describes him. By saying that he can do all things within his nature. And he will never do anything outside of his nature. Which is why one plus one always equals two and not three. Why he will not and cannot make a square circle. Why he cannot lie. Why he cannot die. Why he cannot change. And why he can't allow sinners into heaven. There are some who claim to be of God, who think that God can actually change. People who think that God, in the second person, changed the rules concerning murder when, and killing when he walked the earth. The, t- the covenant terms that are being given here at Mount Sinai, which are being spoken oddly by God, are later explained in greater detail by God in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5. Right after telling us that we are salt, telling us that we are the light of the world, just as he is the light of the world, after that he begins to explain the exact meaning of the laws that he is handing down on that day. You see, the people, those ones that were standing there with Jesus, they actually viewed the laws of God as attainable, just as many people do today. They thought that they could actually keep them, that they could enter into the courts of God based on their own merit. They thought that they could walk into heaven with a copy of the Ten Commandments under their arm as their ticket into God, into heaven. And this is why Jesus further explained to these people and to us what the litmus test is for entrance into heaven. He said of this sixth commandment, You have heard it said, That those, I'm sorry, you have heard that it was said of those of old, you shall not murder. How many of us in here have murdered somebody? I mean, seriously, taken a gun, taken a knife, shot them, stabbed them, dead. No? Nobody? So we think that we actually keep this. We think that we actually, we're good. We got the sixth command down, I don't have to worry about it. But Jesus said you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, not just necessarily saying those words, thinking those thoughts in your head will be liable to hell of fire. Matthew 5, 21, 22. Here is the full explanation of the sixth command. And there is the why that God is just to destroy all humans because all of us have broken his law, Vic's command. All of us have transgressed his perfect covenant. We have all defied him and we all deserve to be killed, to be wiped from the face of the earth, to be gassed into utter darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. God never kills the innocent. He never punishes the just unjustly. He never has. Every human life that he has ever ended, they were all his to begin with. And they had all transgressed the terms of his covenant. And he is under no obligation to love any or all equally. God never kills the innocent. He never punishes the unjust. Well, there was this one time. And this then brings us to the third point of our sermon today. Why you have value. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of Yahweh been revealed? But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds are we healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, and as for his generation, who considered that he was cut out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgressions of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked, and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush him. He has put him to grief. And when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of Yahweh shall prosper in his hand. And out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. That's the Old Testament. You're like, well, that's just the Old Testament. That's that rash, that harsh old God. Acts 4, verses 23 through 27. When they were released, They went to their friends and reported that the chief priests and their elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth sent themselves and the rulers were gathered today against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city together there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan predestined to take place. And then we're told in 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, Grab your Bibles and turn with me again to the book of Hebrews chapter 10 so we can gain greater insight into the penal substitutionary death of Christ and how it ties in with that bilateral covenant that had been made. Hebrews 10. For since the law has but a has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of the realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would not they have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? But in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year, for it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So here's the issue at hand that the author of Hebrews is making. We have all transgressed the law, the the covenant terms, and we are not all subject to the negative side of that covenant. The price to be made whole, to be reconciled, is death. Because without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. That's the issue at hand. Verse 5. Consequently, When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And when he said above, "You You have not desired or taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering and the blood of Jesus Christ once and for all. And then beginning in verse 11, the author takes us back to the stipulations and terms being given by God surrounding this bilateral covenant. The sacrifices were required by God of his people for their sin. And he says, And every priest, every priest stands at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declare Yahweh, I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. And this is why we are not waiting for the temple to be rebuilt. Why? Animal sacrifice will never be needed again, ever. And then verses 19 through 25. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, again, he has given us access to the throne of God by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. He is the reality of the illusion that was given to us in the tabernacle and the temple. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, he is the fulfilling of the shadow that the priestly office represented. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. He reconciled us to himself, by himself, and then given us the ability to once again enter into the positive side of his contract through faith in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Let us therefore hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to, um, to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the the day drawing near. Saints, you are a saint only because of the finished work of your Savior on the cross. The one who gave his all, who was innocent, and who was crushed for your transgression. But Saint, listen to Hebrews chapter 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Saints, look at me. Look Look at me. What do you suppose was the joy that was set before him? It was you. Do you see? It was you. It was nothing else. He got you. This is the joy that was set before him. And not just this corporate you, but you specifically, which is why you matter specifically and why his church matters corporately. Christ died for you. Human life has value because of God. No one has the right to take it outside of God. And it is God who has given us the circumstances in which life can be and even must be taken when it goes against his law. And we all fall into that category. We all deserve death. And because of this, we all die. But God, we the redeemed, those that have been restored to the positive side of the original contract, We have value now because we are now found in Christ. Hebrews 12, 25 through 29. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we who reject him who warns them from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. They're talking about this Mount Sinai. With reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Saints, you have value because you have His name. I, I pray that the Holy Spirit will just in bring this truth to your heart to the point that it just overflows with the love of God for you. That if you were the only person on earth, He still would have come and died for you. He loves you. He died for you. Let's walk it in this reality, Lord. Let's pray.